If you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to the Old Testament book of First Kings. First Kings. And while you're turning there, I want to apologize to Austin. I'm sorry you have to listen to me all week. Um, but that's the way it goes. That's the schedule. So uh, we'll have a good time. Book of First Kings. We are um, doing a, a series this summer called the Prophets Club. And what that means is we are looking each Sunday at a different Old Testament prophet. Uh, a man whom God used to speak to his people. Uh, the prophets were megaphones for God. Uh, they would receive his word, his message, and then they would speak it and uh, present it to his people. Whatever that message was, sometimes it was a difficult message to give and to hear. Um, sometimes it was a message of encouragement to comfort. But these were special men with a special ministry. We've talked about Samuel. We've talked about Nathan. And today we're going to look at one of the more familiar prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah. And his story is recorded in the book of First Kings. Let's pray before we do that. Father, thank you for uh, just a great time of worship, of being reminded of your presence, of getting to raise our hallelujahs to you, to be reminded of how awesome of a God you are and that you're the only one who deserves that word, awesome. Uh, Father, we thank you. Thank you for the privilege we have to be here and to do this worship and this study and this fellowship together. Help us never to take it for granted. Guide us now, Father, as we look at one of your servants of old and uh, the ministry that he had and what you did in his life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you do have a map down in the bottom right corner of your study sheet, and at different times uh, we are going to be noticing a certain place uh, that will appear on that map, so you'll want to kind of glance down there periodically and get uh, a visual uh, geographically. There is a lot covered in the Old Testament about Elijah. That's why he's familiar to us. Uh, a lot is recorded about him. I was noticing that in the archives of our library, there is a series on the prophet Elijah that we went through way back in the late 90s. And uh, it was called Mr. Prophet because Elijah was a prophet worthy of respect. So uh, we spent a number of weeks detailed going through all the aspects of Elijah's life and ministry. We're not going to do that today because we're only giving one Sunday to each of these prophets. So what I want to do first is just quickly go through that list at the top of your sheet that reminds us of different things uh, that we find about Elijah. And then we're going to just focus on two uh, for the most part of this morning. First of all, in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, we are told this. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. So right away, he appears <coughs> here in 1 Kings 17, and we learn something about him. 
Elijah was a Tishbite, meaning he was from Tishbe. If you look down at your map, you'll see where that is. It's just on the east side of the Jordan River, southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Tishbe. And it was in an area called Gilead. And if you would check on that area at that time, it was a very rugged uh, place. Uh, a lot of farming went on there. Uh, the people had uh, animals. They raised animals, and they also raised crops. It was a farm area, Tishbe. And Elijah was from there. He was a Tishbite. One of the things that those people at that time raised was this um, this crop of, of a plant that was uh, sent away and used for perfumes and for medicine. And we know it as what? The balm of Gilead. And that's where it came from. And Elijah was from there. And so we gather from that that Elijah was probably a farmer or the son of a farmer. Um, simple place where he would have lived. Uh, and yet he's going to be called by God to do a big thing. He's going to speak truth, God's truth, to kings. And in particular, one king. And that one king is Ahab. Samuel had his Saul, King Saul. Nathan had his David, King David. Elijah had his Ahab. If you just go back to the last verses of chapter 16, we learn about King Ahab. Starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. So he was the king of the northern kingdom. Israel had divided into two. Uh, there was the northern kingdom called Israel. They had their kings. And there was the southern kingdom known as Judah. And they had their kings. So Elijah is ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel. And here we're introduced to Ahab, who becomes the king of that northern kingdom. Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So to this point, he is the worst king, the most evil, Ahab. Verse 31, he did not only consider it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, heard of her. He married Jezebel, who was the daughter of a foreign king who worshipped Baal. Baal was the primary god of many of the nations around Israel. And so Ahab marries Jezebel. Verse 32, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So in the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, King Ahab, one of the first things he did was to build a temple to the pagan god Baal. Because that was the god of his wife. Jezebel. Verse 33, Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Asherah was a goddess uh, thought to be the mistress of Baal, the goddess of fertility. And so uh, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So like I said, at this point, King Ahab is the worst that there's been. 
and Elijah, the farmer, who were told in uh, the beginning of Second Kings, uh, dressed in animal skins, uh, wrapped together with a leather belt. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound like anybody you know? Uh, not you know in person, but it uh, sounds like John the Baptizer, right, in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, but Elijah, the farmer, this rough, rugged man, is called to be a prophet, a voice for God to the worst king up to this point, the most evil king, Ahab. Some of the other things that we know about Elijah, uh, he was involved with many miracles. There were only certain eras of prophets where a lot of miracles took place, and one was during the time of Elijah. And he got to be part of a lot of those miracles, uh, praying that there would be no rain for three and a half years, and there wasn't. Uh, Praying then after three and a half years that the rain come, and it came. Uh, He he got to be out in the the desert for a while, and God fed him uh, by sending birds who would bring uh, meat and bread to him. Uh, The birds were the delivery boys for Elijah, just miraculous provision for him. He got to experience uh, some miracles when he was staying with a, a poor widow and her son. Uh, while Elijah was staying with them, the widow's flour and oil never ran out. There was always food, miraculously. Um, when Elijah is staying with them, the, the widow's son dies. But God uses Elijah to raise that boy from the dead. Uh, Elijah was involved in the parting of the Jordan River. Kind of makes you think back to Moses and, and uh, the Red Sea and then Joshua and the Jordan. But uh, uh, Elijah experienced the parting of the Jordan at his command. And uh, there was a time when he called down fire from heaven and it consumed a whole bunch of soldiers. So Elijah, there was some real excitement during his time as a prophet. He got to be involved in a lot of miracles of God. Um, Elijah mentored his successor. He got the opportunity to mentor a man named Elisha, who became the next great prophet uh, after Elijah. And we'll talk about Elisha, that prophet, in two weeks. Of course, Elijah is the one who was taken to heaven alive. He never died. He was one of two, he and Enoch. In the Old Testament, never died. But he was taken up in a chariot of fire uh, to heaven. And speaking of John the Baptist, we're told that uh, John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah. There were a lot of similarities between John the Baptist, not only how they dressed, but a lot of similarities in their personality and that type of thing. Uh, Elijah appeared with Jesus and Moses on what was called the Mountain of Transfiguration, if you recall. Uh, Peter, James, and John got to go with Jesus on that mountain. And Elijah was one of the two Old Testament heroes that appeared with Jesus on that day and talked with him. And then according to James 5.17, Elijah was a man just like us. And that's an important statement. He was a man just like us. Because we can hear all the things I just went through about Elijah and think, uh, what a unique man. Um, we could never be like him. He must have been, uh, you know, this, this heavenly person who got sent. James says, no, he was a man just like us, just like all the prophets. Uh, they were men. 
And we're going to see that today because we're going to just zoom in on two experiences that this great prophet Elijah had. Um, one is probably the highlight of his ministry, the biggest moment. The other is the low light. I looked it up, and low light is not a word, but I'm going to use it just to make the outline of what we're doing work. So we're going to look at the highlight of his ministry. We're going to look at the low light, the lowest moment of his ministry that proves what James said. Elijah was just a man like us. So let's start with the highlight, probably the most significant uh, experience of Elijah's ministry. Chapter 18. This is pretty exciting. This is movie material. First Kings 18. We're skipping the part in 17 where Elijah confronted Ahab and told him because of his sins um, that there would be no rain in the land for three and a half years. And there wasn't. Ahab, of course, gets mad, blames Elijah. Elijah has to run away and hide so he doesn't get killed. And that's when God provides for him with the birds, bringing him food. Uh, But now during that time, God sends him to Ahab to take the risk and go back to King Ahab. And we come to verse 16 of chapter 18. Obadiah is an official with King Ahab, although he believes in the Lord. Um, And I'm sure that didn't make Ahab happy. Everywhere he turned, there was somebody who believed in the Lord. It reminded him of his evil. But this Obadiah uh, arranges a meeting between Elijah and King Ahab. And there's going to be a contest. There's going to be a battle that's going to take place here. Um, Elijah is initiating it. He comes to Ahab, and of course, when Ahab sees him in verse 17, he says, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab did not like Elijah. Ahab thought he was a troubler, thought he was an enemy. Um, He made things hard for Ahab. He wished that Elijah didn't exist. But here is Elijah again, confronting Ahab. This time, he um, challenges Ahab. There's going to be a battle. So here's what he says. Verse 18. I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. So the battle is going to take place. This contest is going to take place on Mount Carmel. You'll see where that is on your map down there, kind of toward the north. Um, You have Mount Carmel. So on that mountain, he says, get all the people, call them, whoever can come, people of Israel, meet on Mount Carmel. Then he says, bring the 450 prophets of Baal. Bring all 450 prophets of the god Baal. And bring the 400 prophets of Asherah, the goddess of fertility. So 850 prophets versus Elijah. Odds aren't very good for this contest. 
8.50 to 1. But it's Elijah who's setting it up. That's what he wants. So, verse 20, Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. So everyone comes, they gather, the people, all these prophets, and Elijah. Verse 21, this is how the contest starts. Elijah speaks to the people who have gathered, speaks to the crowd, and he gives a challenge. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Basically, he's saying to the people, you can't have it both ways. You can't do both. You can't follow both. If Jehovah is God, you follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. But you can't do both. You can't waver back and forth. That's his opening challenge as this contest develops. Then Elijah sets up the contest between him and these prophets. By the way, they're just the human beings involved here. The battle is really a spiritual battle. It's between Baal and Asherah and Jehovah. That's where the real battle is here. So Elijah says in verse 22, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. You know, they're killing off all these other prophets. But Baal has 450 prophets. <clears throat> Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves. Baal's prophets get first choice. Choose their bull. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you, these prophets of Baal, call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, Jehovah. The God who answers by fire, he is God. So it's a very simple contest, you know. We're both going to set up this altar. But on each altar, there'll be the pieces of a bowl that have been chosen. There'll be wood. And the prophets of Baal will go first. They're up first. And they will call upon their god, Baal, to um, send fire to consume these animal parts and the wood. And then Elijah will come up second, and he will call upon his God, Jehovah, to do the same. And the God who answers is the winner. And so they do this. The prophets of Baal go first. Verse 26. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal! Answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Try to visualize this. Hundreds of prophets dancing around and calling on Baal to send fire to consume that animal and the wood. But nothing's happening. They go from morning till noon. Well, Elijah can't resist. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He began to trash talk. <clears throat> he says, shout louder. Surely he's a god. 
Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifices. So all day. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So finally, Elijah says, it's my turn. And he has some instructions before he begins. And basically what he says in verse uh, 32, he says, take some stones, 12 of them, build an altar in the name of the Lord, dig a trench around it large enough to hold um, a lot. And in that trench, he wants them to put water. They're going to put water in this trench around the altar, and they're going to pour water on the pieces of the bull and on the wood. Verse 34, he says to them, do it again. Pour more water on everything. So they did. Then he says, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Verse 35, the water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward in front of all these people, 850 pagan prophets, and he prayed. And this is what he said. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then, instantly, the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Wow. That would be the moment in the movie. All right? Sound effects. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, He is God. The champion is crowned. And it's not Baal. It's not Asherah. The champion is Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, the God of Elijah. He wins. And the people declare that. That wasn't a very good conclusion for the prophets of Baal. Verse 40, Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and those prophets of Baal were killed. Contest over. Elijah's God has won. That had to be the highlight of Elijah's ministry. What a great moment. The boldness, the confidence, the aggressiveness of the prophet Elijah. With the odds against him, 
850 to 1. And for it to turn out this way, it had to be the highlight of his ministry. And maybe someday when we see him, he'll tell us all about it. And tell us how great it was and how great it felt to see God come through like this. And to hear all these people shouting, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. He wins. Elijah must have been feeling really good about himself. But then immediately, in just a matter of hours, he enters the low light, the lowest time of his ministry. Interesting. After the greatest victory in his ministry, he will experience the lowest point in his ministry. Why? What happens? Well, chapter 19. Ahab went home and told his wife everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, one of the prophets that were killed. She threatens him. The queen threatens Elijah because of what's happened. And look what this bold, confident, aggressive prophet does in response to Jezebel's threat. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Isn't that interesting? After this great victory, instead of being on the podium getting his medal and everyone cheering for him, his life is threatened by the queen and he's afraid. He's scared of that woman's threat and he runs. And it says that he went down to the desert in Judah, to Beersheba. So you can look at your map, follow him south from Jezreel, Mount Carmel, to Beersheba, west of the Dead Sea. It's a desert area, and he runs there. And verse 4 says, he came to a broom tree, Brooms didn't grow on it. It was just a certain kind of tree. And he sat down under that tree, and he prayed that he might die. What a change. He prayed that he might die. And he said, I have had enough, Lord. You ever said that to God? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Elijah, what are you doing? You just had a great victory. You just saw God come through for you in a big way. And the queen threatens your life and now you want to die? You think you're a failure? You've had enough? says all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Isn't that interesting? That's what the angel said. Talk about practical. Elijah, get up and eat. So he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals. Hmm, Go figure. And a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he laid down again and went to sleep. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. So he got up and ate and drank. So out of fear and out of whatever was going on in his head, he runs to the desert. And God allows him, get this, God allows him to get some sleep and to eat. That's how God responds to Elijah when he runs away to the desert. Why? Well, I mean, it's very possible God knew this man was tired. He'd just gone through a, a huge emotional experience. He needed sleep. God apparently knew he needed to eat. <clears throat> he probably was so busy with this contest, he hadn't eaten for a long time. And so God's response in the desert is to let him eat, to let him sleep. Then, once he's gotten his strength and gotten enough sleep, it says he moved on and he went south. He continued that direction, further away from Jezebel. And it says he went to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. So if you go all the way down to the bottom of your map, you have Mount Horeb, or at least an arrow pointing down because Mount Horeb is further down than there's room on the map here. It's down at the very southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. I don't know if you can visualize that, but it's way down there south of the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Horeb. It had another name. It was also called Mount Sinai. Does that ring a bell? The mountain of God, Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? The burning bush. Way back, Moses had been confronted by God, called by God, to lead the people out of Egypt. And it happened at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. God spoke through the burning bush. Anything else happen there? As Moses led the people out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai that God gave them the law, the commandments. And if you remember, along with him giving God the commandments and the law at Mount Sinai, there was fire and thunder and lightning and all kinds of commotion. And that's where Elijah goes. He keeps running as far from Jezebel as he can get. And now he's at Mount Horeb, Sinai. 
You've got to believe he knows the history and what has happened in the past on that mountain. But he goes there and he finds a cave. And he goes into the cave. And we take up the story at the end of verse 8. He reached Horeb, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. God speaks to him. And God asks him a question. It's not a deep question. It's not a huge confrontive question. It's not a judgmental question. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Isn't that interesting? Elijah, what are you doing here in this cave on this mountain? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. So he explains himself. That's his answer. And the Lord said, verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain. Get out of this cave. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, in my presence, and I will pass by. If you're Elijah, what are you expecting if you know the history of Mount Sinai? Oh, is he going to give me a burning bush? When I step out of this cave, is there going to be lightning and thunder, an earthquake? He knew what had happened before at that place when God spoke. He's probably expecting that. It says, Then a great and powerful wind did tear the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. He didn't speak. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. He didn't speak. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. He didn't speak. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. What is God going to say in this gentle whisper? He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He didn't say it in the earthquake. He didn't say it in the wind. He didn't say it in the fire and in thunder. He said it in a whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? He repeated the same question. What are you doing here? And he replied, <laughs> same answer. I've been very zealous for the Lord God. I've done what you want me to do. The Israelites rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. That's why I'm here. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Turn around 
Head back north. Go back. And then he says, go back and anoint a new king of Israel. Anoint a new king of Aram. And anoint Elisha, your successor. What's he saying? Elijah, go back to your ministry. Get back there. Go do what I called you to do. You don't belong in this cave feeling sorry for yourself. And what does verse 19 say? So Elijah went. He left Mount Sinai. He left the cave. He went back north past Beersheba where he had gotten his sleep and food in the desert. Went back up to Israel. And it says he anointed those two kings. He found Elisha, anointed Elisha. And Elisha became his companion until Elijah was caught up and Elisha took over. This had to be the low point of Elijah's ministry. When he ran, when he was ready to give up, when he sat in a cave, depressed, having a pity party. Oh, by the way, God says in verse 18, you were wrong, Elijah. I have 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You're way off, Elijah. You may feel like you're the only one, but I've got 7,000 more. And so he went back to ministry and he finished well. And you can read about it in those scriptures on that top list. He finished well. But that was his low point. In the desert and in the cave. And did God come down hard on him? God just said, Elijah, get some sleep, eat something. And then he just asked the question twice, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Go back. Go back and do what I called you to do. So, it's not hard to come up with some applications here. Something for us to think about. Okay? So, uh, three things very quickly. I think Elijah learned three things. They were true then, and they are still true today. First of all, never forget this. Post-victory attacks are real. Watch out. We are vulnerable after great victories. I don't know why. Maybe we let our guard down. Maybe we're tired and worn out. Maybe we're thinking too highly of ourselves. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians said, um, you know, be careful lest you think you stand. You may fall. 
You know, Paul said, be careful. And I think Elijah experienced what is so common even today, that a lot of times after victories, you'll see falls. I mean, it's camp season. How many times in the summer do we see teenagers go to camp, have a great experience with God, make decisions, come home in a few weeks, post-victory attack. Or people go and counsel at camp. God uses them. They come back post-victory attacks. You go through a period in your life where you really grow spiritually. You're feeling pretty good. You're on a high. There comes a post-victory attack. You've seen a relationship be reconciled and restored. And things are going good, whether it's your marriage or with your children or with friends. Post-victory attack. It happens. And it's hard to explain because all of a sudden we're depressed. We're disappointed. We feel like quitting. We've had enough. And it's right after a great victory. The enemy knows we're vulnerable. We've got to stay on our toes even after victories. Stay on your toes, be on guard. Don't let him send you off to the desert into a cave wanting to quit. Don't let him. Be ready for post-victory attacks. Second, I think we learn, Elijah learned, that even faithful servants get discouraged. even depressed, even entertaining thoughts of quitting, even the most faithful servants of God, even the most effective servants of God can get discouraged and start having thoughts and go off to their desert and go off to their cave, feeling like they're the only ones who do any ministry They're the only ones that do what God wants them to do. And it's enough. I'm done. It even happens to the most faithful. That's because we're human beings. That's because what James said about Elijah was true. He was a man just like us. And we are human beings. And that can happen to us. And then the third thing that we can learn that was true then and is true now. God, and I'm going to say this, God will never come to you in your cave and say, poor you. You've got it so tough. And it's so hard right now. Why don't you just retire? No, God's word to his people who choose to be in the cave and give up 
is very simple. Go back. Right? Go back to what I called you to do. Go back. I've helped you with the practical stuff. You got your rest. You got your food. You've recuperated. What are you doing here in your cave? I called you. Go back. And do what I called you to do. Don't quit. That's still true today. You know. And, you know, I don't know what would put us in a cave in that position. You know, maybe it's... Maybe it's something emotional. You know, maybe it is fear for some reason. Maybe it is grief. You know, grief is a real thing. Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe it is depression and everything that goes along with that. And we're in our cave because of that. Eventually, God is going to say to us, just like he said to Elijah, what are you doing here? It's time to go back. You can't stay in your cave. Go back. I called you to do something for me. What are you doing here? Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe your marriage isn't going very well. Maybe things between you and your children aren't going very well. Maybe it's you and a friend. And you're just getting tired of it. And and so you just want to give up and you go to your cave and sulk about it. And God comes to you and says, what are you doing here? What are you doing in this cave? Go back and fix it. Go back and at least do your part. That's what I called you to. Don't give up. Go back to what I called you to do. You know, you're going through all kinds of trials in your life, difficulties, struggles, hardships, and finally it's just too much. It's just too much. I'm going to my cave. I'm done. And God shows up and he says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? This isn't what I called you to. Go back. You get the point? I think it's true today like it was with Elijah. Okay, you've had time. Get out of the cave. Go back to what I called you to do. Maybe it's sin. Maybe we've found ourselves getting involved in a sin. And it was after a big victory. But we gave in to temptation. And we're back into that sin again. And we've decided, I'll never learn. I'm just a failure. And so we go to our cave. And God says, what are you doing here? What are you doing in this sin again? Go back. Be who I called you to be. That's our God. So, that was Elijah's experience. He had a highlight Best thing that ever happened to him in his ministry, followed by the worst thing that ever happened in his ministry, the low point. 
And God came to the cave and intervened in a soft whisper and said, go back. And because Elijah obeyed that, he finished well. He went back to his calling and finished well. He didn't belong in the cave. He belonged out there with his calling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, these men who served you. Thank you that you're willing to not only record for us in your word their victories, but also, Lord, the fact that they were human beings and they wore, got worn out. And, and Father, they, they had the emotions of discouragement and fear and made some poor choices. But, Lord, thank you that you always came after them, whether it was the desert or a cave. You kept coming after them to bring them back, to bring them back to what you called them to do. Father, when we go to our caves, or if we're in one right now, could you just keep asking us that question? What are you doing here? Go back. And may we answer with obedience so that we will finish well. In Christ's name, amen.